Good evening, church. Nice to be here. If you haven't met, my name is Paul, and so great to be back in Matthew's Gospel. What can I say? It's really, it's really weird seeing yourself on a video and hearing your own voice and, and hearing your speech impediment as well. It's actually quite, quite difficult to listen to. A spiritual renewal is going to be hard for me next year. Um, here's some things. Here's some things that break my heart. Here's some things that I find totally tragic. Breaks my heart when, when people are genuinely seeking after God. They're longing for God. They're yearning for God. And they go to church week in, week out. And week in and week out, they sit in church, but the Bible's not taught, and Jesus is hardly mentioned, and it's all about rules and not grace. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when people are in legalistic churches. Uh, when all they're taught week after week is do this, don't do this, you must do this, and you can't do this. And, and they leave church every single week. Rather than knowing that they're loved and forgiven and welcomed by Jesus, they leave every week feeling burdened and guilty and weighed down. I call that joyless graceless Christianity, and that, that breaks my heart. But what breaks my heart most is, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in God's church. Hypocrisy when, when a preacher stands up and, and preaches a sermon that they have absolutely no intention of actually putting into practice themselves. That's hypocrisy. Or hypocrisy in the pews, in the chairs, when, when people sit there and they're writing copious notes and thinking, that's a great sermon. But they have no intention of actually putting into practice what's being preached. Or that hypocrisy of standing in church and, and singing these amazing worship songs, you know, arms raised in surrender and abandon, but your heart is, is not actually with God. It's all a show. It's all a, all a performance, all an act. That just breaks my heart. You see, hypocrite is the most common word used to describe Christians. It's the word that Jesus used to describe the Pharisees in verse 7. He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites, he says. And, and the word hypocrite, it means, it means a play actor. Someone who plays the part, gets into character, pretends to be somebody that they're not. And there are two dictionary definitions of the word, that word hypocrite. A hypocrite is a person who acts in a way that contradicts their beliefs. I don't think that's what Jesus means by that word hypocrite because that describes all of us. We all act in a way that contradicts what we say we believe. It, we're not perfect. But here's the other definition. A hypocrite is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue and religion. It's all just pretend. It's pretend because we want to look good. We want to sing the songs and speak the jargon and join the evangelical club. But there's no real heart for Jesus. It's all outward performance, not internal adoration. <laughs> John Newton said this once, he said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. 
First, I will meet some people I had not thought to see there. Well, I surprised. I didn't realize that you were a Christian. Secondly, to miss some people I had expected to see there. You're thinking, oh, where's so-and-so? I thought he was a believer. I thought she was a believer. And thirdly, the greatest wonder of all that I could find myself there because of God's grace. And in Matthew chapter 15, we have two different groups of people with two different attitudes or postures towards Jesus. The first were the Pharisees, and, and they thought that they were amazing. They thought they had it all together. They were so religious, and they had this, this posture of, of smugness and superiority and self-importance and, and almost arrogance. And Jesus basically says to them, you know what? Surprise, you're not going to get to heaven. And then secondly, you get this insignificant Canaanite woman, and her posture is beautiful. It's a posture of dependency, desperation, expectation, gratitude, and humility. And Jesus basically says, surprise, people like you are welcome in the kingdom of God. And the question as we start is, will you be there? What is your posture towards Jesus? What's your heart towards Jesus? Are you a smug, arrogant, self-important, superior type of Christian who thinks that you know it all? Or is your heart one of adoration and humility and desperation and dependency? It's quite a challenging, hard-hitting sermon tonight, just a word of warning. It's not light and fluffy. The heart of hypocrisy, the heart of hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus has been healing. He's been healing loads of people in Galilee. He's, he's given sight to the blind, the, the deaf can hear, the withered hands can work, and he's gained this massive following. And the, the Pharisees, they come from Jerusalem to, to check out Jesus. Open your Bibles, 15 verse 1. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they stop there. Because I think we missed this. Jerusalem to Galilee is hundreds of kilometers. It's a six-day walk. So these Pharisees are intentionally going to check out Jesus. Not positively, they've come to, to judge him to question him, to judge disciples, to judge the church. Because sadly, Christians can be good at that, judging other Christians. Why? Because I think there's a little bit of Pharisee in every one of us. The name, the name Pharisee comes from the Greek word paras. It, it means to, to be distinct or to be separate. And the Pharisees were very good at being separate. They, they longed to be distinctive. They, they longed to be not of this world, and they longed to be these great law keepers. And just so you understand the purpose of the law, remember that God had rescued his people from Egypt and God had brought his people through the Red Sea and God had redeemed his people and declared that they were his people. And then he gave them the law. So as redeemed people, God gave them the law so they could enjoy a relationship with God. The law was never given to earn your relationship with God. 
But as redeemed people, as chosen people, as loved people, God graciously gave you this law to help you to enjoy your relationship with him. But the Pharisees, they just love law. They were so meticulous, so desperate to do everything by the book. Because it's easy to accidentally break a law. So you can put a sign on an object saying, do not touch. But the danger of a sign saying, do not touch, is that you might accidentally trip and accidentally touch that object. And so the Pharisees put like an electric fence around that object, a fence around it with all these laws and traditions to make sure they went nowhere near that object. And what the Pharisees did is they had this long, huge list of rules, rituals, and traditions to help them to stop them breaking the law. But over time, it became all about rules and rituals and not about God. And that is strangely attractive, you know. <laughs> following rules, following rituals, it makes you feel good about yourself. And the Pharisees took sin very seriously. They they were what were called the biblical fundamentalists. And they took that as a compliment. But Jesus calls them Pharisees. Hypocrites, he says. Hypocrites. And you read Matthew 15, and we are so tempted to go, you go get him, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. You religious, ritualistic, ridiculously pious people. And as soon as we do that, the Spirit of God prompts us and says, hang on a sec. Look at your own heart. Because there is a bit of Pharisee in me, to be honest. And I'm sure a bit of Pharisee in you. Deep down, we love rules, we love rituals, we love to look good. And do you know which group of Christians are most likened to Pharisees today? Evangelical Christians. Sydney Anglicans. Now, please don't get defensive. Please do not say, how dare you, because it's right, it's true. We can have all the biblical answers, all the helpful evangelical traditions, all the, the powerful worship experience, but, but our hearts can still be a long way from God. It's easy to act and to perform. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said this, no person is really good until they've squeezed out of their soul the last drop of the all of the Pharisees. Let's look at this story. We've got three marks of hypocrisy. The first mark of hypocrisy is, is being the religious police. Being the religious police who just, just judge everything. You ever have that person who comes up and checks on the work that you're doing even though you didn't ask them to? or didn't need them to. That's what they do to Jesus. They, they stand over his disciples with this, this posture of condemnation. They're looking out for bad things. They, they like to find fault in what other Christians are doing or saying. Does that sound familiar? First one, there's some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus, and they ask a question, and I'm always intrigued as to what tone of voice they ask that question in, and I, I think they probably had that really posh, English accent. And verse 2, they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And it's the most ridiculous question. Are you telling me that these Pharisees have traveled hundreds of kilometers, six days walk, to say, I've noticed that your disciples don't wash their hands. 
The Pharisees just loved their hand washing. But it wasn't about hygiene. It's not a mum saying to a child, your hands are filthy, wash your hands before dinner. This is a tradition. This is a ritual that made them feel so good about themselves. There is nothing in Scripture about hand washing. It's a man-made rule. And so before every meal, actually between every course of every meal, a Pharisee would wash their hands. And they get a one and a half eggshells full of water and they, they point their fingers upwards and they pour water over their fingers. They would dry them with their fists and then they put their fingers down and they would wash their hands downwards and it was just ridiculous. But they felt good. And I love Jesus' answer in verse 3. They, they come to Jesus and say, why do your disciples break the tradition? And Jesus turns it on his head and says, hang on a sec. Why do you break the Word of God. Why do you go against Scripture for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites? You're supposed to be the biblical teachers, the biblical scholars who stand up for biblical truth, and yet you're breaking the Word of God with this tradition. Isn't that ironic? Here's what Scripture says, verse 4, For God said, honor your father and your mother. Respect them, honor them. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. That's a bit scary. But this tradition they had is called Corbin. And, and stick with me, verses 5 and 6 is quite complex. Their tradition says, you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is, quote, devoted to God, then they're not to honor their father and mother with it. And it went a bit like this. A, a, a Jew was supposed to honor their parents in their old age. And the way they would honor their parents is they would set aside a bit of land or a bit of money to care for their parents in their old age. And I love that. I think our culture and our society could learn from that rather than stick them in a home and let someone else look after them. But the Pharisees had this, this, this tradition, this, this law that said, actually, you can devote it to God and then you're exempt. So if you devoted your portion of land or devote your money to God, to the temple then you excuse from the command of honoring your father and mother. And it went as ridiculous as this. You could devote a chair in your house to God and say, actually, mum and dad, you can't sit there because that's been devoted to God. And so they took these stupid laws and they, they, they elevated above Scripture. And Jesus says, well, you nullify the word of God, verse 6. Ouch. They're supposed to be the, the Bible-teaching church. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. Verse 7, you're so busy washing your hands and swanning around feeling good and looking down at other Christians, but, but your heart's not right with God. You, you look good on the outside, but inside there's a deep spiritual hypocrisy. You're hypocrites. Verse 7, you are fulfilling what Isaiah said about you, and it's not pleasant. Verse 8, these people honor me with their lips. They talk lots and lots and lots about God but their hearts are a long way from God. Verse 9, they worship me in vain. So they go through all the motions. They put on great services, great gatherings, but it's just that, a gathering. It's not about God. It's about them. Because their teaching, verse 9, are merely human rules. And I hope you know that no one ever got saved by following human rules. Rules actually stop people from seeing Jesus. 
That was the Pharisees, religious police, rule keepers. But being religious police, that's not a problem for us, is it? Loving rituals and rules, it's not a problem for the bridge church, is it? We can be very legalistic. We can take a good thing and a beautiful thing like I don't know, having a quiet time or joining a connect group and we take a good thing and we make it a rule or a law. And you look down on any Christian who does not join a connect group and they question their salvation. Or and we can be so black and white. I hope you know that the scriptures are full of grey. Lots of grey. Of course there's black and white salvation, but lots of grey. And Pharisees hate grey. They like black and white. Christians can disagree on issues to do with worship stars or mode of baptism or role of genders in church or alcohol or lifestyle matters. And it's okay. They're still Christian. But Pharisees hate grey. And we can be pretty good at looking down at other churches and thinking that we are better than them and we're excellent at being the exegetical sermon police where you just listen for every single verse, but you're more concerned with ticking your box than a deep love for Jesus. And we can know our Bibles really, really, really well, and we can know that we're supposed to care for the poor and the needy, but we do nothing with it. And I think pride is a huge issue for evangelical Christians. Being seen in church, being important in the church, being part of the in-crowd in the church. In the synagogues, there were, there were special chairs on the platform, on the stage, for the special guests, for the preachers, for the pastors. Praise God that we chucked out our bishop's chair and our rector's chair. Actually, don't tell the bishop that. Uh, <laughs> if we ever have chairs up here for our pastors and our preachers, we have lost the plot. It's like when you go to a, a wedding reception and you look at the, um, the seating plan for the reception. And they think, oh, I'm on, ta- I'm on table one. I'm right next to the bridal table. And you feel really good about yourself. And then sometimes you think, oh, I'm on table 27, right next to the toilets. And then <laughs> you don't feel quite so important. But that's okay. You shouldn't need to feel important in church because you're important to God. J.R. Vassar says this, tragically, contemporary evangelicals are often infected with arrogance. After all, we have all the answers Hypocrisy craves recognition, but humility is synonymous with true Christianity. I love this quote. You just be faithful and let Jesus be the famous one. You just be faithful and let Jesus be the famous one. So beware of being a religious policeman. Beware of being a blind guide. That's what Jesus calls these Pharisees in verses 12 to 14. Read it with me, verse 12. The disciples came to Jesus and and asked, Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He's saying, Jesus, that was a bit harsh. You were talking to to, to religious people of power, and you offended them. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right, I did. I intended to offend, because they're hypocrites and they're leading people astray. Verse 13, he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. He's basically saying the Pharisees are like the weeds in the parable of the the wheat and the weeds. 
the weeds will be pulled up and they'll be burned. He said, you'll be surprised, all those super-religious people who swander around, spouting biblical truth, standing up for biblical doctrine, unless their heart is right with God, they're not going to be there. And so he says, verse 14, leave them. Literally have nothing to do with them. Stay away from them. Don't mingle with them. Don't give them airtime. Don't engage with them because they're a distraction. Actually, they're dangerous. Verse 14, they are, they are like blind guides. If the blind lead, the blind both fall into the, into the pit. He's saying if you're blind, you need someone to lead you to safety. If you're blind, you need someone who can see the light to lead you to the good things. But if the Pharisees are blind, then they're just going to lead these blind people into the pit. And again, I think it's so easy to point the finger at other people. Let's point the finger at Roman Catholicism where millions of people have been taught every single week that you must go to a priest to receive forgiveness, not Jesus. That's an easy target. Let's point the finger at the liberal churches that deny the resurrection and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're the easy targets. Let's point the fingers at the Pentecostal churches who perhaps overpromise what God can do to them. They're, they're the easy targets. What about us? We can be blind guys too, you know. We can be theologically correct, but be graceless. Breaks my heart when people come into this church and they're, they're looking for help and healing and purpose and meaning. And what they hear or what they see is basically a message which says, clean up your life. Clean up your life and, and become a kind of good Christian person and then you'll be welcome here. If you walk into our church and they are battling, they are broken, they've got addictions, and they're battling sexuality or gender struggles. And I hope they don't hear in this church, go away, clean up your life, become straight, become celibate, get rid of your addictions, get rid of your brokenness, become, become back a, a different person, and then Jesus will welcome you, because that's not the gospel, is it? Jesus said, come to me, come to me in your addictions, in your brokenness, in your mess. Come to me as you are, and let me love you, and let me heal you, and then I'll begin to change you. Now, don't mishear me. Of course, I want to uphold godliness, but, but godliness comes when, when you allow the Spirit of Jesus to change you. That's a false gospel that you clean your life up, and then you can come to Jesus. The third mark is a defiled heart. And Jesus gives a simple lesson in biology in verses 15 to 20. He says, are you so dull? I love his directness there. Are you so dull, Peter? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? He's saying, come on, Peter. You eat something, it goes into the stomach, and eventually it passes out of your body. You can eat a whole lot of rubbish, bad stuff that's really bad for you, but it will still leave your body. But, he says, verse 18, the things that come out of the person's mouth come from the heart, and those things defile them. You ever found yourself in a conversation with somebody and you say something or a tone or something, and you think, where did that come from? 
these words of venom or these words of hatred or these words of revenge or these words of bitterness. Oh gosh, where did that come from? And the answer is here, in your heart. And Jesus lists, lists several things in verse 19 and they're not pleasant, but out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And we could add lots more like gossip, hatred, racism, bitterness, pride, greed, deception, and lies. And he's saying, you can look the part with all your food rules and what you can and can't do, but your heart is the problem. And so you don't need to clean it out. What you need is a clean heart, because none of us have got pure hearts. Psalm 51, created me a pure heart, O God. I need God to clean up my heart, not me. I can't do it. And that's what's beautiful about Jesus. Jesus doesn't expect perfection. He just wants you to come to him and let him cleanse you and let him change you. So church, beware of hypocrisy. It's so ugly, and yet it's so pervasive. Now, now you'd think the Pharisees would hear this from Jesus, and they'd be squirming and think, oh my goodness, I've been so blind. How stupid to think these rules, these rituals, would draw me closer to God. I need a clean heart. And they fall at their feet and worship it. It doesn't happen. When the Pharisees hear this, they, they kind of put up walls, and they get defensive, and they're offended and they're outraged by Jesus. They say, we, are, we, are, we are the men of the word. We've gone to the right Bible colleges. And there is no repentance. It's just resentment as how dare Jesus expose that. And my fear is that some of us might be doing that right now. How dare Paul preach this sermon tonight? Because, hey, we are people of the word of God here at the British Church. And we've got our right theological colleges and Jesus might want to be exposing some kind of hypocrisy in your life if you would let him do that. I love what Mark Twain said. He said, having spent a considerable amount of time with religious people, I can now fully understand why Jesus liked to be with the tax collectors and the sinners. It is so ugly, religion, please. A heart of hypocrisy and then a heart of humility because this is the right way to approach Jesus. And I love these two stories side by side. Leaving that place, verse 21, Jesus withdrew to a region of Tyre and Sidon. It's modern-day Lebanon, and it's the home of the Canaanites. And if you remember the Canaanites, they, they didn't really connect with the Israelites. They fought. Nothing's changed. They didn't do life together. They really hated each other. And verse 22 tells us a, a Canaanite woman from, the vicinity, from that vicinity came to Jesus. Now, let's just stop there because I think we read the, the, the Gospels and we don't spot the shocks. She's a Canaanite. So she's not a Jew. She's not one of the, the covenant people of God. And she's a woman, not a man. And in that culture, in that era, in the biblical times, a woman had no business hanging out with a man, especially a Jewish man or especially the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. But this beautiful woman, she comes to Jesus in her desperate need because her daughter, verse 22, is demon-possessed and suffering terribly 
She's absolutely desperate. She's been outcast from society. She's exhausted. She's at her wit's end. And so she chooses to fall at the feet of Jesus. There's no other place to go. Where else would she go? She's not asking for rules or rituals or traditions. She's asking for mercy. She's crying out, verse 22, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it is interesting, she, she uses the messianic title for Jesus. Remember, she's not Jewish, but she humbly calls Jesus the Son of God, the one who can have mercy. And I love those words, have mercy on me, she says. She's not asking Jesus to look at her and say, oh, how wonderful you are. She's just saying, gosh, I'm desperate, Jesus. I know I don't deserve anything. I just need your help and your mercy. That's the right posture. Now, here's the shock. See, Jesus is full of compassion, isn't he? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we say. Doesn't seem to be in this encounter. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So this woman comes and begs, and he just ignores her. And that seems quite rude, doesn't it? It's a quick lesson on reading the gospel. When Jesus does something which surprises you, he often wants us to teach you something. His disciples, verse 23, came to Jesus and, and urged Jesus, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. They say, Jesus, just do something with her. Either heal her quickly and send her away, or just send her away, because she's so annoying. That's their attitude towards this woman who's begging. Oh, she's just annoying. And Jesus' answer, verse 24, it's a shocking verse. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, he cannot be saying there that he's only the Messiah to the Jews. Because in Matthew's gospel, he's already healed so many Canaanite people or Gentile people. He's already welcoming all these Gentiles. So he cannot be saying that he's only come for the Jewish people. What he is saying there is, I've only come for the true Israel. And the true Israel is not just those religious Pharisees. It includes broken Gentile people. Uh, the woman came, verse 25, and she knelt before Jesus. That, that is the, the right posture before our Lord Jesus, that, that posture of dependency, nothingness, humility, on your knees before Jesus. And she prays a simple prayer, Lord, help me, she says, Lord, help me. As I said last week, you don't need long liturgical prayers when you're desperate. It's not what you pray, it's who you pray to. She begs. She adores him. Lord, help me, she says. And again, it's a shock in verse 26. Jesus replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Did Jesus just call her a dog? Yeah, he did. But he's not tearing her down. He's using the, the language that the people used. The Jews called themselves the children of God, and they called the Gentiles the dogs. It's so offensive. But Jesus is lovingly drawing her to himself. He says, verse 27, yes, it is, Lord. 
It is right to do that. It is right to toss the, the, the scraps to the dogs. Because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's saying, Jesus, is okay. I know my place. I, I know I'm not under the covenant of the Jewish people. I, I know I don't have any rights to be here. I know that I don't deserve anything from you. I don't deserve the best bread. I'm just begging for a few scraps. Jesus, could you please give me just a, just a, a scrap of your mercy because that'll be enough to hear my daughter. And Jesus said to her, some great words, woman, you have remarkable faith. You have great faith. And at that moment, her daughter was healed. Because this woman came in her brokenness, her desperation, her despair, and she just sat at the feet of Jesus, and she wasn't spouting how important she was. She was humbly sitting at the feet of her Savior and just begging for mercy. And she was a Canaanite. She wasn't Jewish. But Jesus loved her. Jesus welcomed her. Jesus healed her in her brokenness and her pain. And that is true humility. Church, I do wonder whether we struggle with humility. Because we live in a, in a, in a culture, especially here on the North Shore, where we're almost trained to think that we are super important and we're somebody's. Trained to think how amazing we are. And the longer I've been a Christian, the more dangerous it is for me to forget that I'm just a nobody. I'm completely undeserving. I'm just desperate before Jesus. And this woman believed that Jesus would, would welcome her and forgive her. It's that posture of adoration, desperation, expectancy. That is true humility. I want to say, church, whoever you are tonight, whether you've come with addictions, with failings, feeling worthless, feeling unloved, knowing that you've failed today, you haven't kept your temper, you haven't controlled your tongue, maybe your heart is full of bitterness and you haven't loved people well, and whoever you are, Jesus welcomes you just to, to sit before him, to kneel before him and just say, Lord, please forgive me, please help me. And his heart is for you, not against you. That's all he wants from us, his posture of humility. And it's really beautiful. I'll finish with this quote from Tim Keller. The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I'm so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And it, that, that this leads to a deep humility and a deep confidence at, at the same time. It undermines swaggering. You cannot feel superior to anyone. And yet you have nothing to prove to anyone. You don't think more of yourself or less of yourself. Instead, you think of yourself less and more about how remarkable Jesus is. And that's what I long for in this church, a church not of smugness, self-important, rule-keeping, judging other people, but that sweet, desperate dependency on Jesus. So how is your heart tonight? Heart of hypocrisy or a heart of humility? 
Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we adore you. Lord Jesus, you are, you are beautiful. Beautiful in your, in your welcome of, of sinners like us, of broken people like us. Lord Jesus, you invite us to come to you in our, our weariness and our burdens and to find rest. And Lord, we are sorry for times we have made that simple truth so complex. We're, we're sorry for the, the jargon we use, the rituals we put in place, the rules we impose on people. We're sorry for the way that we judge people. Please, Father, would you rid this church, rid this church of, of all hypocrisy. Lord Jesus, we love you.